when we think of gender data, what we say is it's data that is collected and presented with sex as a primary and overall classification. It reflects gender issues. It's based on concepts and definitions that reflect the diversity of the lives of men and women. And it's developed through collection methods that take into account um, stereotypes and social and cultural factors that can otherwise introduce gender bias into data. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Ali, and today I'll be speaking with Miraja Penumecha, Senior Manager of Programs and Operations at Data2x. For those of you who aren't familiar with the organization, Data2x is housed by the United Nations and dedicated to improving the quality, availability, and use of gender data in order to make a practical difference in the lives of women and girls around the world. Today, Niraja will be walking us through the basics, like what is gender data and why does it matter? Let's jump right into it. Thank you so much, Niraja, for taking the time to be here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, the discussion with all of you. Awesome. Well, let's get started. So... Today, we are going to be talking about something called gender data. But before diving into what that is more specifically, let's start by defining data. So Niraja, when we say data, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, I like like that we're starting with the fundamentals here. So yeah, data is this just incredibly broad term. And in a sense, you know, Really, it could be almost anything, any information about the world, about our experiences in it, all of that could be considered data, but it's really hard to run an organization with a definition that broad. So to narrow that down and to think of it a little bit more specifically and more practically, I try to think of data as something that offers insight and clarity about either systems or people, how they work. So data for me really has to be actionable. So it's information that we can capture, that we can analyze, and then hopefully, ideally, really used to improve those systems in people's lives. Right. Okay. So really anything that can be systematically collected can be considered data. Absolutely. So on that note, I I imagine that there are several different types of data. Could you elaborate on what these different types are, what types Data2x is focused on, and maybe specific benefits and and disadvantages of, of some of them? Sure. So for a lot of Data2x's work, we're really thinking about um, large-scale data collection. So something that's happening at a, at a national level, international level, occasionally subnational as well. But, you know, we're really looking for kind of that broader impact. So we, we think of data at these high levels. And so at country level, if we want to look at it at that level, data systems are kind of built on, let's say, three or four things. So there's sort of what we would consider very basic survey level type data. So your censuses, which really just give you your baseline of what, what's, in, what's happening in the country. Um, some of those national level surveys like labor force surveys or, or living standards surveys from the World Bank or, or ILO would be sort of at that population level. And then maybe built on those that level, you also have administrative data systems. So think of your, your healthcare systems, your education systems, your civil and vital registry systems, so tracking birth, death, marriage, divorce, all of these kind of basic life events. So there's that sort of second layer where you're kind of getting a little bit more into sort of what's happening in people's lives. And then maybe a third layer on top of that, and this is where we have a little bit of less work currently because they they aren't really built into the policy world just yet, but I think where we are seeing things going 
our digital data is is one layer there and sort of the citizen generated data and those are those are kind of really overlapping and so I think we're all really familiar that we're all basically walking around continually attached to networks and providing information about where we are, what we're doing, where we're going, what we're buying, all of that, all of that information. Um, and it largely lives with, with the private sector and some other organizations, but to start thinking about how we can pull in information that's a little bit different than what we could get from some of these more like basic censuses and systems. And really trying to start bringing that in and thinking about how we can integrate all of these pieces together to give us a really, I think, a, a more nuanced and holistic picture of people's lives. Highlighting all those different types of data really shows you, like you said, how integrated data is in like every aspect of our lives. So it's clear or for those in the audience today who might be unfamiliar with the term gender data. Could you define what that is more specifically and, and why it's so important? Sure. So we we at Data U2X use sort of a like a four-part definition, and I'll I'll go through that and then we can talk a little bit more about what it actually means. And so when we think of gender data, what we say is it's data that is collected and presented with sex as a primary and overall classification. It reflects gender issues. It's based on concepts and definitions that reflect the diversity of the lives of men and women. And it's developed through collection methods that take into account um, stereotypes and social and cultural factors that can otherwise introduce gender bias into data. So if we wanna break that down a little bit, you know, broadly at one level, we can think of gender data as sex disaggregated data. So if we're collecting, say, um, how many people were born today, about 50% are male, 50% are female, right? But just very basic sort of separation. But then if we add sort of a layer on top of that and you start to think about sort of the implications beyond just that first layer, it's important to understand a little bit more specific. So to use a different example, if we're collecting information on, let's say, mental health conditions. And so if we, looking at the number of cases of depression in the U.S., we might say, okay, well, 70% were women and 30% were men. I don't know what these numbers are. I'm just, I'm picking, uh, making numbers up. It's one thing to kind of say like, okay, that's, that's like at our basic level, what that disaggregation is. But data is also one level below that of why are those numbers different? Um, Are there differences in how men and women are diagnosed? Is that where we're seeing this? Are there actually underlying differences in prevalence of these conditions? Do men and women interact with the health system differently in a way that's introducing bias? And so to think about all these pieces, are there cultural expectations that are different for men and women that are causing us to, that are manifesting in these different ways? And so I should pause and say, I am referring to men and women fully appreciating that gender is more than just those two categories. Um, At Data2x, we focus on the lives of women and girls. And so we often don't really think of, spend most of our time focusing on that, but I do want to acknowledge that obviously gender is, is not a binary. And um, while I am saying men and women, I really should be speaking to the, the full spectrum of that. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Highlighting all those other genders as well and making sure they're represented in the data is, is something that we're trying to focus on as well at Data Feminism Network, but we often find ourselves using similar language to, to Data2x. So would you say that it's fair to conclude that at the base of why gender data is so important is inclusive decision-making and making sure that women and girls and, and other marginalized communities are, are represented in that data? 
I think that's part of it. So for sure, we want to fully capture the experiences of, of women and girls, of, of all categories of people. But I think the second part of that is to actually act on that data. So it's, it's great to know why there's a, that there is a difference and why there is a difference. But unless I ultimately do something with that information, it's, it's, it's not as useful as, as what it could be. And so I think the big step is not just to collect that data, but to actually act on that. For sure. And I think that's a great segue into um, what it is that, that Data2x does as an organization and how exactly you guys work. Yeah. It might be helpful maybe if I talk a little bit about sort of our, our creation story, if you will. And so Data2x was actually came out of a speech that um, at the time Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave in, I think it was 2012. And she said something along the lines of um, the lack of data on women is like having a black hole at the center of our data-driven universe. And so this idea is that women are half of the world, but we are consistently undercounted or not counted at all. And so if we, and I think we are more and more living in a world that's built on data, that's driven by data. If we don't know what half of the world is doing, then how are we possibly actually have, you know, how are there any actual data-driven decisions? How is there any actual evidence-based policy if we're missing half of it? And so that was sort of really the impetus to, to start Data2x as it came out of this, uh, this point that she brought up. And so what Data2x does is, you know, as Ali, as you said, you know, we, we are trying to support the quality, use, and availability of gender data. But really what that means is, I guess, break it down into three parts. The, the first is that we, we try to explain what gender data is, why it's important beyond just the technical world. So we're not just talking to data producers and users, but more broadly, everyone's lives are touched by women and include women. So it's a bit silly to think of gender data as a niche issue, it's an everyone issue. And so to really talk about how this is in our collective best interest to, to uh, capture gender data. And then the second piece is we try to fill in gender data gaps and improve data from the, the source point. And so if we're collecting data um, and we're building data systems, then let's build those with this consideration in mind. Um, and so all of those different data systems we talked about, having sex disaggregation at every level, making sure data is being collected in a way that actually can reflect women's lives, all of that piece, um, all of those different things. And then the third is to take those, after doing those first two pieces, is to really mobilize action around gender data. So how do we tell the story of gender data? How do we build the partnerships and bring in the right people? to advocate for the collection and use of data. And ultimately, again, to go back to our, our goal of improving the lives of women and girls. So to collect the data, to use the data, and ultimately to have some impact on the world. It seems like data is really integrated into so many different aspects. I mean, first you have the data is essential to convincing policymakers and industry leaders of the need for change. And then the data itself is a Key, plays a key role in supporting those systems of change and then actually making sure the data is used properly and interpreted in a meaningful way is just a, a whole other level. So it's, it's interesting to hear how many levels there are and how Data2x is trying to kind of cover all of those, um, which I'm sure is a, is a daunting task. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And you mentioned evidence-based policymaking. So could you elaborate on the connection between policy and data? So it's an interesting question because I think in one sense, we want all policy to be based on evidence and research and data. And so it it kind of feels a bit obvious to say evidence-based policy as opposed to what non-evidence-based policy, but like realistically, yeah, that's kind of where we are in a lot of, in a lot of places. I think it's, it's, as you say, it's, it's at every level and it's a little bit of a feedback loop. So ideally, you know, the way we would do this is policy is a response to data, right? Like we see and understand the world in a certain way. We see ways it can be better, which is all in for things that data should be able to illuminate for us. And then we intervene with policies to improve it. And then on the flip side of that is once we do intervene, we use data to assess our policy interventions to just kind of continually kind of calibrate and improve. Realistically, it's obviously not nearly that simple. Policy is ideally built on data, but it's also navigating a lot of different politics. It's navigating trade-offs, um, different priorities, all of these other things. And so data just becomes one factor uh, that you're trying to kind of push through and make sure is, is visible to policymakers. And so I think this is a space that we as an organization, and I, I know a lot of other organizations in the space are really thinking about um, how do we most effectively make those connections and how do we most effectively drive the development and dissemination of policy or of data in a way that it has an impact on policy. And I think we're still learning the answer to that, to be honest with you. I wish I had like a great solution where I could just go plug this in somewhere, but realistically it's it's something that we're continually navigating. And as, as people's expectations of data grow, um, which is definitely happening, and as the expectations of the timeliness and the resolution of data grow, it's only going to make that a more complex question to try to answer. So I think it's, it's something we're still trying to figure out. Um, and I think it's something policymakers are trying to figure out and it's something data producers are also trying to figure out. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Politics and, and policymaking is, is so complex as is. And with that in mind, what kind of challenges is Data 2X facing in terms of barriers to gender data and as an organization navigating the space? I think one, one big aspect of this is while on the one hand, gender cuts across everything um, and is relevant in everything, it's also not its own, it can be, but it's not always its own issue area. So it's not so much that we're fighting for gender, it's that within a health system, we're fighting for gender data. And then within the environment ministry, we need to go figure out gender data. And then within economics, we need to go figure out gender data. And so you're sort of, you need to understand the data, you need to understand the gender aspects of it, but then layered on top of that, depending on what sort of subject area in, you also need that expertise to really get the value of it. And so there's this challenge of, it's not that I need to convince one person, it's that I need to convince a dozen people over and over and over, right? Um, And so there's that sort of, how do we make sure that people understand and realize that regardless of whether or not they feel like gender is at the forefront um, of what they do, it is impacting what they do and they do need to consider it. So I would say that that's one of the key continuous barriers that we're also facing. I think the other thing is not gender specific, but 
true for data, um, it's hard, right? It's hard to collect data. It's expensive to collect data. And then to understand it and apply it thoughtfully is incredibly challenging. Even if you have all the time and expertise in the world, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, and then again, thinking about your average policymaker, they have a million different competing priorities. And then again, we're saying, okay, but you also have to learn to be really data savvy. Like that's a big ask. And so that goes back to thinking about how do we, it's not just a question of collecting the data and sharing the data, but it's doing it in a way that makes it easy to act on and easy to use. I love that you highlighted that you know, data is expensive and it's time consuming to collect and difficult to use because I'm actually listening to the audiobook of, of data feminism is what the book's called. And in the chapter that I'm reading right now, the book focuses on unequal power within our society as part of one of the key aspects of data feminism. And what they mentioned is there are three primary, I guess what you would call like institutions who can typically implement who have the resources that is to collect, analyze, and, and implement data. And one of them is like universities, um, it's S's, three S's. I think it's science, school, and something else. But basically the main idea is that it's these systems, it's these institutions that have the financial resources to collect and analyze this data. Um, so they're the ones kind of, we're, we're collecting and analyzing this data on their agenda. They get to decide, you know, what is important enough to be um, analyzed in that way. So it is so important to make sure the needs of marginalized communities are also collected and analyzed and not just uh, the agenda of these more kind of elite institutions that have the resources to do this research. So I love that you highlighted that. And you also highlighted that Gender data, again, similarly to data, is integrated into so many different aspects of our lives, whether that be healthcare or, you know, setting the temperature of our offices <laughs> to a temperature that is adequate for both men and women. So there's a term that we're beginning to hear more frequently and something that is highlighted on the Data2x website, and it's something called the gender data gap. So could you explain what that is and give a few, a few examples of how women have been excluded from data throughout history and continue to be excluded today? Yeah, gender data gaps, oof. Uh, and I completely feel you on the temperature in the office thing. You know, the, the sweater in the summertime is just, it's out of hand, but anyways. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, gender data gaps are, are pervasive and basically it's, even immersed in it, I'm still regularly surprised by just how much this shows up and impacts our lives. And so kind of maybe a couple of examples that are familiar probably is a, I think this is a fairly recent study, but basically it turns out that women are far more likely than men to um, have serious injuries and deaths in car accidents. And the reason is the standard car seat is designed for men. So the average woman is shorter and smaller than the average man. And so where the seatbelt placement is, how close you are to the steering wheel when you're driving, to see pedals and all of that, women just have to sit closer. And then the, the you know, seatbelt tends to, I don't know if other women have this issue, but it kind of cuts across your neck, right? It's just uncomfortable. It's also suboptimal for safety reasons, but 
crash test dummies were based on men and all of the standards around safety are based on men. And so we're apparently just okay with women dying at higher rates and all of these things because something that someone invented in what, the 40s, the 50s, I don't know, whenever it was done was just set up around men's bodies. And so that's just like a really basic gender data gap. And so you see this in product standards across the board. Um, one example I learned recently is around a very relevant example these days is around personal protective equipment. So those N95 masks that we're all very familiar with now that our healthcare workers are using, it turns out when those were developed and the standards were built for those, uh, it started out, um, let me see if I gotta get the story right. It started out in the US Army. It was a military thing, or maybe it was Navy. It was a military thing um, where they were developing these masks and the person who was in charge of doing this, he just, grabbed a few guys in the unit that he was at. And so he ended up pulling out, I think it was 10, I think they were all Caucasian. So 10 white guys, basically. And that's how they came up with the masks and the fit of the masks and all of that. And then the military standards became the national standards, the international standards. And so now globally, we are all using these masks that were designed to fit white men. And as it turns out, the average white man happens to be bigger than the average healthcare worker because the average healthcare worker is a woman and in many cases not white um, and has like slightly different face shapes. And so again, the fit isn't as good. And so the protection isn't there. And so once again, like women's safety is being compromised because we just built the world for men. And there's a really great book that y'all have probably already come across called Invisible Women and Caroline Creative Perez goes through just dozens of examples like this. And it is, it is shockingly pervasive how much of the world is really and truly built for men physically. And it's not, and I'm saying this as an engineer, it's not that hard to also design things for women to offer a couple, like it's a little bit more expensive, but we could have multiple sized masks. We could have seatbelts that have like a, a setting that pulls it down a little bit lower and sits a little bit different. Like these are all very, very solvable problems but there just needs to be sufficient awareness and demand for it. And so part of this is, is, you know, groups like this and other organizations who are like bringing this for issue to the forefront. And then part of it is there needs to be a, a demand and an expectation that when products are designed or when safety standards are being set or all of these things that we consider the full range of potential users and not just um, men. And I think, the last example, which is one of my favorites that I think of often, is a lot of pharmaceutical, and I used to work in this industry, so I have some familiarity with it, but a lot of healthcare technologies and pharmaceutical things and whatever, they're all, when you're testing them, you test them on animal models and then on people. And often the animal models and even the cell lines that they're tested on are male cell lines and male animal models, because apparently it's very distracting for scientists that the female animals go through these like hormonal cycles once a month, apparently. Um, and it throws off their data, they are concerned. And so they're like, ah, we'll just do it all on men, which great. But as it turns out that your ultimate end user population is also going to use, have about half of the people also going through monthly hormonal changes. So maybe it's worth testing it and understanding it and, and working within that constraint as opposed to treating that as some sort of um, special case. So those are, that's gender data gaps for you. Those are some great examples that you highlighted. And 
Also, I love that you highlighted, you said, as an engineer, which is very interesting, it's not that hard to kind of collect that data and, and build stuff that also fits women and, and works for women as, as men as well. And you said it might be a little bit more expensive. And that's something that is talked about a lot when you talk about data and making sure women are represented in the data. Or honestly, that's something that's talked about a lot in the realm of gender equality in general. The fact that including women is often more expensive. But one thing that is, is research is discovering is that although it might be more expensive in the short run, in the long run, it'll, it'll save the government, it'll save everyone money. Like, for example, the car crash dummy example that you gave. Sure, it might be more example to, sorry, it might be more expensive to develop a crash test dummy that reflects the average body weight and height and muscle distribution of a woman. But once that's created and, and once you run a few extra tests, which also cost a, a little bit extra, you're going to end up saving I can imagine millions of dollars in hospital bills of the women who are no longer going to be suffering serious injuries. So thinking about it in terms of money and the initial investment it costs is something very short term. And we need to start thinking about those investments as, as long term investments. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's also an incentive issue, right? Like the car company needs to have an incentive and a requirement to also consider women because right now if they're meeting all of the standards that are being set for them what is their you know they're not necessarily incentivized so we also need to think about this and I think this goes back to the policy question of are we asking the right questions and are we collecting the right data to be shifting the standards in a way that would be relevant then for for men and women um, or all body types rather. For sure yeah and an example of shifting the standards that's particularly relevant in today's time is um, obviously with everybody working from home or unable to work because of the pandemic, people are struggling to keep their kids entertained because their kids are also out of school. And a topic that's been discussed a lot is um, investing in care work and investing in, in education so that kids can have a place to go and, and, and parents can continue, continue working while raising children. And that investment is something that's talked about all the time by governments. Like it's, it's too big of an investment, but research shows that kids who receive proper care and, and proper education growing up actually become more involved in the labor force because they see their parents working, they see their mother working, and they not only support women working as they get older, but they also are more inclined to work themselves. And it's just, like you said, a feedback loop that really needs to be talked about more. And it's awesome that... Data2x and other organizations are kind of leading those narratives. So just to change lanes a little bit for our last question, I know there are a lot of students in our community and probably a few in our audience today. So a lot of us are looking to get, I'm a student myself, and a lot of us are looking to get inspired and are kind of unsure about our future career paths. So we would love to hear about your personal and career journey and how you ended up in the realm of gender data. Yeah, I wish I had like a really great career story. My career story, I think, is, is um, let's call it an organic meandering sort of a thing. But basically, I initially studied engineering, as you said, um, and I studied biomedical engineering. And then I, it's an interesting subject, um, don't get me wrong, but I was like, I, it's like, it's fun to like learn about this, like the EKG machine or, or whatever it is. 
but I was just kind of curious. I was like, yeah, but like look, taking a step back, this is one piece of a system and I'm interested in that system. And so I went from sort of biomedical engineering to thinking about like healthcare and healthcare systems. And then as it turns out, when I was learning about healthcare systems and kind of working in that space, it was like, actually, there's a whole healthcare field around this that brings in policy and workforce and regulations and all of these other things. And then that was kind of interesting. So I started studying that a bit more and my career shifted a little bit to kind of bring that in. And I ended up going back to school to study global health. I was working in the global health space. And then I had sort of the same sort of like pulling back effect of like, health is really interesting and healthcare is really interesting, but actually it turns out that this fits into this broader system of development. And, you know, there's all these socioeconomic factors that impact health and and it zoomed out again a little bit for me. And then I ended up at the the United Nations Foundation um, working in at the Clean Cooking Alliance, which was sort of a mix of all of these pieces of like, I had some of the engineering in there, some of the health in there, climate, all of these other things. And it just basically, I just kind of kept moving upstream. And then this position opened up with Data2x, focused on gender data. And although I didn't have great expertise in gender, it was a fascinating area. And I realized that, again, there's just an impact that you can have when you are looking at something so fundamental as gender and so fundamental as data. And so it was just, it seemed like an interesting opportunity. And I had sufficient background in development that I felt like I could make that shift and I could at least learn the gender piece of it as it were. And so it was just one of those things where an interesting opportunity popped up. And even though I wasn't perfect for it, I pursued it anyway, and it it happened to work out. Yeah. And your story is a great example of, you know, you graduated with a bachelor's in electrical engineering and then ended up working uh, in gender data. It's just a great example of you know, you never really know where you're going to end up and you can never predict your, your career path in that way. It's awesome. If I had one piece of career advice to give people, I would always say like, it doesn't have to be a perfect fit. If it's something is interesting, just pursue it. Like always be open to those opportunities because as you say, you really, you cannot predict it. I mean, I could have stayed in engineering and I could have been somewhere designing a widget or something. And I mean, we would have been happy with that, but being willing to try things is really, really important. So. It's great advice. So thank you, Niraja, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This was definitely a very insightful conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you all. To stay up to date on Data Feminism Network events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode on Data Feminism 101 with Naomi Nyamwea.